All right, well, let's take our Bibles tonight and uh, turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter number 1. We ended 1 Samuel last week, and we're going to jump straight into 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter number 1. If you do not have a Bible, uh, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will get one for you. We want you to have a Bible as we study God's Word together. 2 Samuel chapter number 1, we'll begin reading at verse number 1. We'll read the entire chapter, as is our custom, 2 Samuel chapter number 1, and we'll begin reading at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass to the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head, and so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his sons, his son, are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan, his son, be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me. For anguish is come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live. After that he was fallen, and I took the crown that was upon his head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head. For thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor field of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, and the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from a fat of the mighty, 
The bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of a battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very, very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war? Perished. And let's go ahead and bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight asking that you'd please bless this time as we open up your word, Lord. I pray that you would please help me to have the clarity of mind that I need, Lord. I pray that you would give me the strength that I need to be able to preach your word, Lord, with uh, your uh, power. Lord, I pray that you would help this to be a time that we would uh, draw close to you, Lord, that we would learn from the Bible. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. All right, well, we're there in Second uh, Samuel chapter number 1. And Second Samuel chapter 1 is kind of just finishing up the story from the last chapter of First Samuel. And uh, tonight, I want to just, I, we don't have to be, be very long tonight, although every time I say that, it doesn't mean anything. We're just as long as we normally are. But I, I, I want to just give you just four uh, quick lessons that I kind of just saw in this chapter, and they're, the le- they're lessons from the characters, from the four characters mentioned in the chapter, four lessons from the four characters, and I'd like you to notice uh, verse number one, the Bible says, now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that behold a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. I want you to notice this man comes to David, and we're told later on in the chapter that it's in Amalekite, and he comes looking and searching for David. And when he gets there, he makes obeisance to him, meaning he greets him, he bows himself to him. Notice verse 3, David said unto him, From whence comest thou? The word whence means from what source or from where are you coming? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped? And David said unto him, How went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, the people are fled from the battle. Remember, in the, at the end of uh, 1 Samuel, they, the children of Israel lost to the Philistines, and they lost basically everything that they'd accomplished in that entire uh, book. And the Philistines are now inhabiting Israel, and they've taken over. And David is asking, you know, how did this thing go? And the, pe- and, and the answer that he got was, the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, how Noah out though Saul and Jonathan his son was are, be dead. Notice verse 6. And the young man, the Amalekite, told him and said, now I want you to notice that in this chapter, the account that we're given by the Amalekite as to how uh, Saul died contradicts what we are told in the book of 1 Samuel and also in the book of uh, 1 Chronicles. Notice what he said. He said, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, 
Behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head, and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them hither unto my Lord. Now, several weeks ago, when we were in 1 Samuel 28, I, I spent a lot of time going through and explaining to you how it is that we ought to study Bible, the, the Bible, and how we need to look at uh, the narrator versus you know, uh, what a character in the passage is saying. I just want to go ahead and, and make the statement. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to make enough statements for it to make sense. The, you need to just know right off the bat, this young man, this Amalekite is lying, all right? He's not telling the truth. And here's what you need to understand. The Amalekite story contradicts the Bible's narrative, all right? Just real quickly, turn one page back to 1 Samuel 31 and look at verse number 3. 1 Samuel 31 and verse number 3. This is what 1 Samuel 31 and verse 3 says, And the battle went sore against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was sore wounded of the archers. This is what the Bible says. Then said Saul unto his armor-bearer, Draw thy sword and thrust me through therewith, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was sore afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, notice, the Bible tells us that the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead. He fell likewise upon his sword and died with him. Notice verse 6. So Saul died. This is what the Bible is telling us, how Saul died and his three sons and his armor and all his men that same day together. Now, you know, several weeks ago, I went through this a lot, showed you a lot of different passages. I'm not going to take the time to do that now. If you want to write this reference down, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 says this, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here's what you need to understand. When, when God gave us His inspired word, He would speak through men. And as those men spoke, and eventually that was written down, you need to understand those men were used in the same way that I would use a pen to maybe write something down. It would be my words. I'm just using a pen as an instrument to write it down. That's how God used these men. They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Here's what you need to understand. When men spake in the Bible and the Holy Ghost inspired them and it was the Word of God, it was God speaking. So, when you're reading a story in the Bible, and not all the books offer a narrative. You know, the book of Romans is a letter to the church at Rome. But a book like 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Esther, books like those that have a story, the Bible will often have a narrator who's kind of narrating the story. And then within the, that book, you'll have different characters making different statements. Now, here's what you need to understand. When the narrator is speaking, whether it's Matthew in the book of Matthew, uh, in, in 2 Samuel here, it's not Samuel, Samuel died in 1 Samuel, but whoever prophet is that wrote 2 Samuel, when the narrator is speaking, that's God speaking. So anything they say is correct. Anything they say is true. So in, 2, in 1 Samuel 31, we read the narrator, which is the Holy Spirit, telling us how Saul died. When you get to 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter number 1, 
people will often point at this and say there's a contradiction in Scripture. That in, in, in 1 Samuel, you know, Saul committed suicide by uh, falling upon the sword. And in 2 Samuel, this Amalekite killed him. But here's what you need to understand. Go to first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter number 1 and verse 6. I need to get used to saying 2 Samuel. We've been, I've been preaching through 1 Samuel for like 38 weeks, so I need to get used to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 6. Notice what it says. And the young man, the Amalekite, told him and said. Now notice, from, from the word said there, comma, capital A, as I happen, that's a quote. And this young man is basically speaking through the end of verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. He's telling the story. This is not the narrator telling us what happened. This is this Amalekite telling us, you know, his version of the story. And here's what you need to understand. He's lying because the Word of God tells us the narrator, the Holy Spirit, already told us how Saul died. Does that make sense? And we need to make sure that when we're studying the Bible, we're rightly dividing the Word of truth. And you're not just allowing people to say, let me show you a contradiction here. It's not a contradiction. And it's true in the sense that that is what the Amalekite said, but what the Amalekite said was a lie. The Bible uh, will often, uh, you know, write down what an individual said, even if they're lying, just because it's what actually happened. All right, go go to Second Samuel chapter uh, one and look at verse number eleven. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. Notice verse thirteen. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, an Amalekite. Now if you remember David just got, you know, burnt by the Amalekites in Ziglag. David just fought a battle against the Amalekites. You probably don't want to be an Amalekite, you know, coming to David. And you say, well, why would this young man lie? Why is he lying about the story? Here's why he's lying. He's coming to David. He's making obeisance. He's bringing, you know, the crown and the shield of Saul. And he's, he, he basically believes that he's bringing good news to David. Because Saul has been David's enemy for many years now. Saul has been putting David on the run for many years now. And he thinks, I'm going to be the first one to go tell David that Saul is dead. And then Saul, and then David's going to, you know, he probably assumes David's going to be the next king of Israel. And I'm going to be in good standing with David. And, and to take it even further, he probably came upon Saul's dead body, took the things from him. And then he goes and makes up the story and says, no, actually, I killed him. And he thinks David is going to just, you know, be real happy and say, yes, finally, someone killed David. But that's not David. And notice the story begins to backfire on this young man. Look at verse 13. And David said unto the young man that told him, once art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger, the Malachite. And David said unto him, how was thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And at this point, you know, this plan starting to backfire on this guy. And he's probably thinking to himself, that's not what I expected you to say. Because remember, David had many opportunities to kill Saul and chose not to because he would not stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. Look at verse 15. And David called one of the young men and said, go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. David tells one of his men, go kill that guy. And he has him put to death. Notice verse 16. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head for thy mouth. He said, Because your own mouth test, hath testified against thee. 
He said, I killed Saul. Now, I believe that was a false confession. I believe that was a, a, a lie. But because he said that, David had him put to death because he should not have killed Saul. Even though that's not what actually happened, that's what David believes happened because this Amalekite lied. Notice, thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Now, keep your finger there in 2 Samuel. That's our text for, for this evening. But go with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. In the New Testament, you can find the T-books. you got 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. All of those T-books are clustered together. Find the T-book and you'll be close. Get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And what's the first thing we can learn? The first lesson we can learn from this Amalekite is this. Don't seek promotion through deceit and flattery. We ought not to seek promotion. We ought not seek favor. We ought not seek honor and glory through being deceitful ourselves or through a flattery. You're going there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me read for you from Samuel, I'm sorry, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 75 and verse 6 says this, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He put it down one and set it up another. He says, hey, promotion doesn't come from the east, from the west, from the south. He's saying promotion comes from the north. Promotion comes from God. God is the judge. God is the one who puts one up. God is the one who puts one down. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul said this. Notice what he said. He said, for neither at any time used we, notice these words, flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He said, look, we did not use flattering words, and we did not have covetousness, and we did not seek glory from you. And listen, be, be very careful. When somebody starts giving you all sorts of flattery, just be careful. Be careful about that individual. And look, it's nice when people give you a compliment, and I think compliments ought to be sincere, and I think they ought to be factual, you know, and, and I think it's good to give compliments to people from time to time, but you know, you get around someone who's constantly flattering you, constantly telling you how great you are, they're buttering you up for a reason, all right, and look, just in our lives, you know, at work, just, you know, whatever, whatever you're in, school, whatever you're doing, you know, just in general, we have to be careful that when we get promoted in positions of leadership, when we receive honor or favor, when we receive, you know, glory, when people, you know, give us kudos or whatever, we need to make sure that that is done because we're being honest, because we're working hard, because we're, we're you know, because we, we are who we say we are. We're not just trying to bring bad news, you know, to the boss that we think he's going to like. You know, we're not just trying to use flattery. We're not just trying to say, hey, you know, your enemy's dead, hoping that he's going to give us something for it. We ought to make sure that promotion comes and that we don't seek promotion through deceit and flattery. Hey, listen, at work, you ought to work just as hard when the boss is there as when he's not. You know, and if you're a Christian and, you know, the boss is gone and you're taking a longer break and you're on Facebook and you're surfing the net and you've got your, you know, your, your feet on your desk and then the boss shows up and all of a sudden you're all working, you need to get right with God. You, that is a bad testimony. You are, you are a pleaser of men. You are trying to flatter. You're trying to look like something, you know, to try to please him. Hey, you know, in life, we ought to do things as unto the Lord is what the Bible says. And we ought to work for God. We ought to work just as hard when the boss is watching as when he's not. 
We ought to do right whether the boss is there or not. Flattery, deceit, you know, these are not things that Christians ought to use to seek promotion. And the first thing we can learn from this Amalekite is that we ought not seek promotion through deceit and flattery. And it's interesting, you know, because uh, you've got a person here confessing to a crime that they did not commit. And they're, doing, you know, and they're doing it because they think they're going to get a reward from it. And you know, let me just go ahead and take a moment to say this. It has nothing to do with the sermon. I just feel like I should say this to you. If you ever get arrested, all right, don't confess to anything, all right? Because I don't know if you know this, but cops are allowed to just completely lie. And they do. They will, they will sit down and they will say, like, we've got you on video. We've got, foot, you know, we've got your fingerprint. And they're just completely and utterly lying to you. Just ask for a lawyer and move on. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I'm not even sure why. I feel like the Holy Spirit is telling me that somebody needs that. So anyway, go, go back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. 2 Samuel chapter number 1. It's wrong. I think it's wrong that these cops can just completely lie to you. But they do it. And it's, it's legal for them to do it. So don't trust the government. 2 Samuel chapter 1. Look at verse 11. Let me give you the second lesson we can learn from this chapter. 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 11. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. Go down to verse number 17. Notice what the Bible says. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, the beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. Notice what he says. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. And here's what I want you to understand. David is broken over these news. See, this Amalekite, he was hoping and he was banking on the fact that David was like you and I, or like a normal man, who when someone is persecuting you, and someone is hating you, and someone is trying to ruin your life, that we would hate that individual. But what he did not understand is that David was a man after God's own heart. And the second lesson we can learn from this passage, we can learn it from David, which is this, to learn to truly love your enemies. Saul ruined and wrecked David's life. I mean, there are people that hate you, and there are people that hate me, and there are people that you hate, and there are people that, you know, I, you know we dislike or whatever. But look, I don't think any of us could ever say that we have had someone like Saul, with the authority and the power of Saul, do as much harm to us as Saul did to David. I mean, literally ran him out of town. Literally, you know, just hunted him like a dog. Ruined his marriage. Gave his wife to another man. I mean, just destroyed him. uh, Ruined his life for several, several years. And when the story comes back to David that Saul is dead, he's not happy about it. He's He's not even saying like, well, I'm sorry I went down that way, but good riddance, bad rubbish. I mean, he's broken over the fact that Saul and Jonathan and the men of Israel lost the battle, but it's, it, he's broken over Saul. And here's a man who truly loved his enemies. Notice what he says in verse 20. He says, tell it not in Gath. Gath is one of the cities, the, the, the regions of the Philistines. 
He says, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, another region of the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised tribe. He says, ye mountains, he, he's saying, don't tell it. Don't, he said, don't spread this news in the Philistines. We don't want the Philistines to know that Saul is dead. We don't want them to, to rejoice over, over the, the death of this man. Notice verse 21. He says, ye mountains of Gilboa. This is where Saul died in Gilboa. He says, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor your field of offering. He's basically putting a curse on, on this location because just because that's where Saul died. Notice he says, for there the shield of the mighty is vitally cast away. The shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Notice verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives and in their death. They were not divided. They were swift to the eagles. They were stronger than the lions. We're going to come back to that verse in a second. Notice verse 24. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul who clothed you in scarlet with other delights who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. And here's what's interesting about David, you know, and here's, here's something you and I ought to learn. Saul ruined David's life. And yet David was able to acknowledge something, you know, that Saul did good to someone else. You know, so David couldn't say Saul ever gave me anything good. David couldn't say Saul ever did something good for me. Saul never gave me a gift. All Saul ever did was give me grief. But notice he says in verse 24, he says, You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet, and with other delight to put ornaments of gold upon you on, on a barrel. He says, look, Saul did good to you. And here's what you need to understand, and here's what I need to understand. I see this so, I, I'm, I'm praying that God allows me, gives me the ability to communicate this well. I hope, hope you understand this. But what I've noticed with Christians, especially in our independent fundamental Baptist movement, is that when we don't like someone, everything they do is wrong. Everything they do is bad. And there's no value to anything they've ever done. That guy, you know, if he doesn't agree with me on one thing, he's a reprobate. I mean, you know, everything they've ever accomplished. But here you see David saying, hey, you know what? Saul and I, we had issues. And Saul did a lot of wrong to me. But he did some good things for other people. And he can acknowledge the fact, look, just because someone hates me and says bad things about me and doesn't like me doesn't mean that everything they've ever done is wrong. It doesn't mean that everything they've ever done is bad. And here David is acknowledging the fact that Saul did good things for the people. And here's what we see. The lesson from David is that we, can, we must learn, like David, to truly love our enemies. Go to Matthew chapter 5. You're familiar with the verses, but let's look at them quickly. Matthew chapter 5. This is, this is why David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was dying on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And Jesus loved his enemies. And David loved his enemy. And you and I ought to learn to love our enemies. Are you there in Matthew chapter 5? Look at verse 43. I know you know the verses, but let's look at them together. Matthew chapter 5, look at verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. Now that's not in the Bible. He's not saying, you, you know, God said that or the Old Testament. He's just saying, you've heard that said. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. He says, bless them that curse you. That's who your enemy is. The one that curses you, that's your enemy. Be good to them that hate you, that's your enemy. The one that hates you, 
That's your enemy. Pray for them which despitefully use you. You say, well, this individual is using me. They're, they're manipulating the situation. They're just using me to get something. And God says, you know what you ought to do for that person? Well, I know what I ought to do. I ought to stand up for my right. I ought to go you know, to his boss, right? I got to go and, and, and not let that happen. No, God says pray for them. Jesus said when they curse you, you bless them. Jesus says love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Notice what he says, that ye may be the children of, the father, of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his, the sun to rise on the evil and the good. You know that the sun comes up for those who love God and for those who hate God? You know that God provides oxygen and God provides sunlight and God provides you know, uh, uh, drinking water and God provides animals and fruits and vegetables for all of us to eat, whether we love the Lord or whether we curse Him? And he says, look, people, when they, when they are our enemies, we need to love them because that's being God-like. That's being Christ-like. For, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Notice verse 46. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, I love this phrase, what do ye more than others? He says, look, if you just like the people that like you, or you love the people that are like you, or you love the people that love you, what are you doing that's so great or so special? He says, here's what being a man after God's own heart is. Here's what being a woman after God's own heart is, is when you learn to love your enemies and pray for them and bless them that curse you and do good to them that hate you. Notice verse 47. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 48. Be therefore perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. Look, we, we need to get this lesson, you know, and, and you don't have to turn here, but Ezekiel 33, 11 says this God, about God. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we, the lesson we can learn from David here is that we need to learn to love our enemies. And not just to be, you know, here's, here's where I think most Christians assume loving your enemy is, is I'm not going to punch him in the face, you know, when I see him. <laughs> Or I'm just going to, you know, here's what, here's what loving my enemy is. I'm just going to ignore them and not talk to them. And as long as I'm not fighting with them, then that's love. But look, that's not love. Here, when Saul died, this was not a fake emotion. David's heart broke. And he fasted. And he wept. And he even took vengeance on the one who, who said that killed Saul. And David was not just, you know, okay, God, you told me to love my enemy, so, you know, if I see Saul, I'm just not going to kill him. No, he actually just loved this man. And, you know, you say, I've got enemies and I've got people. Hey, you know, I, if I were you, I would just pray for them. And I would, I would be surprised if you didn't start praying for people that you considered your enemies or that you thought did not like you, if, if you would not begin to love them in your heart. And, you know, the lesson we can learn, what are the lessons? Number one. From the Amalekite, don't seek promotion through deceit and flattery. Number two, what lesson can we learn from David? Learn to truly love your enemies. Let me give you the third lesson we can learn from Jonathan. Go to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 23. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 23. The first lesson from the Amalekite, don't seek promotion through deceit and flattery. The second lesson from David, learn to truly love your enemies. Here's the third lesson from Jonathan. 1 Samuel 1, look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan, you see that? Were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, notice this phrase, they were not divided. Now here's the question I have. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? 
Is it good that they were together at their death? And I would submit to you that the answer to that question is no. They should have been divided. In their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Give me a minute to develop this, and and we'll move on to the last point. We We won't be long tonight. But here's what I want you to understand. Jonathan was related to Saul. Saul was Jonathan's uh, father. They were related through the flesh. Physically, they were kin to each other. All right? Now, David, throughout the Bible, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ will reign on the throne of David. Often in prophecy, uh, David is mentioned as a picture of Christ. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. David will often picture Christ in, in, in the Bible. And here you have a picture of Jonathan, who's a good man. Jonathan, who's a good guy. Jonathan, I mean, you read the story of Jonathan. Jonathan was great. Jonathan was fighting Lord's battles from time to time. And Jonathan was doing this. And Jonathan was doing that. But here's what you need to understand. Jonathan came to a place where he had to make a choice between David, between the Lord Jesus Christ, or Saul, or his flesh. You say, well, well I, I, I've been around Saul longer, and I'm more comfortable with Saul. And, and with Saul, things are easier. See, if I go out with David, i got to go out in the, in the wilderness. If I go out with David, I've I, I got to go live in the, in, the, in the caves. If I go out with David, then Saul is going to see that as me hating him. But with Saul, I'm comfortable with Saul. I'm, it's convenient with Saul. Things, things are going well. But here's what you need to understand. Here's a lesson that we can learn from Jonathan. If you choose the flesh over Christ, you will die with the flesh. See, look, Jonathan was a good guy. He's like you and I. Remember the story? He goes out and he sees David, doesn't he? He goes out and he makes a visit with David. He goes out and he finds David and they embrace and they kiss and they wept. He, he, he spent time with David from time to time. And that's how the average Christian is. You say, I don't mind going to church every once in a while. I don't mind making out a trip and being and fellowshipping with Christ every once in a while. But I, I live with Saul. I hang out with Saul. Most of my life, most of my time is with the flesh. I'll go see David. I don't dislike David. I like David. But if I have to choose between David or Saul, I'm choosing Saul. That's how most Christians live their lives. If they have to choose between the spirit and the flesh, if they have to choose between Christ and the flesh, they're going to go with what is easier. They're going to go, well, if I go with David, they're going to see me as a traitor. Well, if I go with David, I'm not going to be comfortable. Well, if I go with David, yeah, but here's the problem. If you go with Saul, when Saul dies, you'll die. And look, we, we saw it last week. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when it is conceived, bringeth forth death. The third lesson we can get from Jonathan here is if you choose to live in the flesh, you choose to live with sin, you choose... And here's what's interesting. At the same time that Saul is basically going into a battle that he's going to lose and die in, and Jonathan dies as a result of being with him, David is fighting the Amalekites and winning a great victory. Jonathan could have been with David. Jonathan should have been with David, but he chose Saul, and he died with Saul. So the third lesson we can learn from Jonathan is, if you choose the flesh over Christ, you will die with the flesh. Let's look at the fourth lesson. Go, go, to, go to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1, look at verse 25. 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 25. 2 Samuel 1, 25. How are the mighty fallen? This is David speaking. In the midst of the battle, O Jonathan... Thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. 
Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love was to me was to me uh, thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perish? Now I'd like you to go to the uh, book of Titus. Titus in the New Testament. You were just in First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians, so should be fairly easy to find. Find those T books. You can get back to First or Second Thessalonians. You have First and Second Timothy and Titus, and. In this passage here in verse 26, the end of 2 Samuel 1.26, the Bible says, David said about Jonathan, he said, Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. And people will often refer to this passage and they'll accuse David and Jonathan of having some sort of a perverted relationship. And they'll accuse David and Jonathan of being sodomites and being homosexuals. Because David said that thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Now, here's what I want you to understand, and I'm going to explain this, this passage to you. But uh, Titus 1, 15, kind of makes, makes you understand why people assume, in the, in the world that we live in today, why people assume that. Titus 1, 15 says this, Unto the pure all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. See, the problem is that we live in a very defiled society. Where anytime you see the word love, we just translate that to a physical relationship in the bedroom. And we live in this, in this just society where, I mean, you get around people and all, all they talk about, every joke is, you know, about, you know, a physical relationship and about this and about that. You say, well, why is that? Here's why it is. Because unto the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. And see, people that are perverted and people that have wicked minds and people that are just brainwashed by watching television, you know, because here, here's the honest truth, even in Christianity, we won't take a survey tonight, but I mean, if we raised our hands to say, you know, to compare, how much time did the average Christian today spend in the Word of God versus the stinking television, we would be embarrassed to say, you know, I mean, we spend one hour, two hours, three hours with the radio, with TV, with movies, with YouTube, with Facebook, and then we spend five, you know, you know we're lucky if we read the Bible. I mean, We'd be, we'd be fortunate at Verity Baptist Church if half of you read the Bible every day. And I'm not saying that to be rude or offensive. I'm just telling the truth. The average Christian doesn't read the Bible. And we're brainwashed by the world. We look at these perverts in Hollywood. We look at the Sodomites. And, and, and we're, we're brainwashed by it. Then you come to the Holy Word of God and you read a passage like this and you think, oh, there must have been Sodomites. You know what? To the pure, all things are pure. But unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. So if you just read that passage and just assume, oh, David's a sodomite, you're probably a pervert. Or you've probably been brainwashed to just have a corrupt mind and just to translate everything into a physical relationship. But let, let me say this in 2 Samuel. Well, go, go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. And by the way, you, you know, the Bible says this, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. We need to have our minds transformed. The Bible says that we would be renewed, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need to get in the word of God. We need to be reading the Bible. You need to be listening to preaching. We need to get as much Bible. We say, why do we need Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Because we need our minds renewed. 
so that we don't just think wrong. And, I, I, you know, I, it's amazing to me just the stupid things that people say about life and marriage and raising children, and they say the dumbest things. And it's like, you haven't been reading the Bible about that. You've been getting your philosophy from the world. And our mind, you know, people say, well, you, come, you go to church like Verity Baptist Church, you know, you're going to get brainwashed. You need your brainwashed. You need to be cleansed. You need to be told, you know, this is how God thinks. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are different than our ways. Are you there in 1 Samuel 18? Look at verse 1. I want you to notice that Jonathan and David were very close friends. Jonathan 18.1 says this. 1 Samuel 18.1 says, And it came to pass when he had made an end of speaking unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And here's what you need to understand. Jonathan and David were military buddies together. Jonathan and David fought battles for God together. Jonathan loved the Lord together. They served side by side together. And these two men truly, honestly loved each other. Now, I will say this. Go, go back to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. David says, I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. Let me say this. I don't believe that this is a, uh, you know, perverted statement that David is making. But I will say that it is a sad commentary on his marriage or his marriages. And here's what's interesting. Go, go to the book of 1 Peter. We're almost done. 1 Peter chapter 3, towards the end of the New Testament. Here's what's interesting in the Bible. In the Bible, you often find people who practice polygamy, where they had multiple spouses. And then, but you also have examples of people that did not have multiple spouses in the Bible. And you know what you find in the Word of God? When, when there were people who did not have multiple spouses like Aquila and Priscilla, you find them working together. You find them, you know, serving the Lord together. You find them having a good relationship. But when you have people in the Bible who had seven wives or multiple wives, you find that they don't really have a good relationship with any of their wives. And, and here's what you need to understand. You know, in marriage... Your wife or your husband ought to be your best friend. I mean, I can honestly say tonight, my wife is my best friend. And I hope I'm her best friend. You know, I think I am. And, and it's not just that we're married. It's that we enjoy spending time with each other. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I have, you know, I have, sometimes I have, I have to set alarms at our house, you know, that say, like, we need to go to bed. Because my wife and I, will just sit on the couch and we'll just talk. And it'll be, before we know it, it's 3 in the morning, and it's like, good night. You know, we got to go to bed. You know, we got things to do tomorrow, you know, whatever. And I, it, it amazes me how little communication there is between spouses and how, how married people just don't talk to each other. They're not friends with each other. And here's the thing, you know, if we were honest, there are men and women that could say, this, make the same statement in their marriage and say, oh, my buddy, I'm much closer to my buddy than I am to my wife. Or, you know, I'm much closer to my girlfriends, you know, what the girls would say, instead of my husband. You know, I can talk to him and relate with him. But listen, in marriage, your spouse ought to be your best friend. And there ought never, you know, you, you, you shouldn't have friends outside of your marriage. You know, and, and, and let me say this. I'm going to go again and get on all sorts of rabbit trails. I don't have any female friends, okay? 
I, ladies, you're not my friends, okay? I, I, you're nice. I like you. I'm glad you're here. You're not my friend. I'm not going to go have lunch with you. I'm not going to talk to you on the phone for two hours. I, don't, I, I have one female friend. Her name's Joanne. And by the way, ladies, you ought not have male friends. You, ought, you know, men out of fellowship with men, women out of fellowship with women, and, and it's wrong, and it le- the Bible says to not make provision for the flesh. By the way, women don't go soul winning with men. I've already Baptist church. Men don't go soul winning with women unless they're married. Say, I don't think you. I've known pastors who were going soul winning with some female, you know, church member, and then they, it was found out they were committing adultery. All right? And it's wrong, and it's wicked. And, you know, ladies fellowship with ladies, men fellowship with men. And uh, don't talk to my wife, and I'd appreciate that. First Peter 3, look at verse 5. I'm talking to the guys, of course. First Peter chapter 3. Let me explain something to you. If your wife, and, and, and ladies, let me go ahead and say this. It's, I don't know what time it is. My phone's not working, so I'm going to Texas, so I'm just going to go ahead and just preach. First Peter 3, 5. If you wives want to have a good relationship with your husband, you, you know, wives often will complain. Because guys don't really complain about this because guys are, you know, guys, they'll just sit on the couch and drink a soda. They don't have to talk to anybody. You can be, a, you know, you can be driving down the road with another guy for like an hour and say nothing to each other and, and everything's fine. And you guys are just fine. If that happened between women, I mean, they hate each other. They can't stand each other. You know, so men and women are just different. Uh, men are from earth and women are from somewhere else. But uh, anyway, but let me say something to you. Ladies, you know, if you want to have a good relationship with your, with your husband, let me just give you some advice. Quit belittling him and disrespecting him, and he'd be more willing to talk to you. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5. For after this manner... In the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, notice, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Could you imagine what would happen if a husband came home and his wife said, how are you doing, Lord? He said, I would never do that. The word Lord just means like you're the boss. What if a wife just said to her husband, hey, boss, what's going on? You know, but notice whose daughters ye are as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. And here's what the Bible teaches. And listen to me. Guys respond to respect. If you want to get a guy, you know, and here's the thing. When a man feels disrespected, he shuts down. When a man feels like he's not being, like he's being belittled. And I mean, I, I hear the worst things. Let me just go ahead and get on rabbit trails. I hear ladies, you know, a husband's like hamburger helper again for the 12th night in a row. And these women are just like, he will eat what I make. I'm just like, good night. I mean, I am so glad I'm not married to you. You know, you know what I love about my wife? Because here's the thing with my wife. Like, if, if she just was alone, she would just eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all day long. She makes these wonderful, great meals. If you ever been to our house, I mean, my wife is a wonderful cook. But she doesn't cook for herself. She cooks for me. She cooks to please me. She dresses to please me. Everything she does is meant to please me, and that's great. You know, when a husband wants to please his wife, and when a wife wants to please her husband, but when, look, ladies, you say, I don't know why he don't want to talk to me, because you're always belittling him, because you're always bossing him around, because you're always disrespecting him, because you're always, you know, uh, just embarrassing him in public. This is why people don't have good marriages. Ladies, you know, you say, I want to have a better relationship, quit disrespecting your husband. Guys, let me give you some advice. You husbands, you want to have a good relationship with your wife? You need to get to know her. Look at 1 Peter 3, 7. 
Likewise, ye husbands. Notice what it says. You ought to underline this in your Bible. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Here's what he says. Get to know her. You know that your wife wants you to notice when she's wearing a new outfit? She wants you to notice that. Your wife wants you to notice when she does something different with her hair. She wants you to notice that. Now, look, guys don't notice anything. I mean, I have to, and, and I fail at it more often than not, but I, you know, I just randomly will say, oh, that's a real nice outfit, honey. You know, is that new? No, it's real. I'm, like, I'm just making sure, you know. Because, you know, they want you to know. They want you to know them. They want you to know all their little weird quirks and things they think about. They want you to know them. And the Bible says that we ought to dwell with them according to knowledge. You ought to be able to just order for your wife at a restaurant and get it right. I'm not saying you need to do that, but you should be able to. Say, I have no idea. I don't know. You know, some of you guys are like, what's your wife's favorite color? I don't know. What does your wife like to eat? I don't know. You know, what, what, do you, what does your wife like to do? I don't know. Like, who, which one's your wife? Do you even know that? Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Let me give you some more advice. Look at verse 8. If you're, and let me say this. If, if you want to have a good relationship with your spouse, and by the way, if you want to have a good relationship with anybody, just within church, just at work, or just with extended family, here, here's, here's a clue. Be kind and polite. Notice what verse 8 says, finally. Be ye all of one mind, having compassion, one of another. Notice what he says. Love as brethren. Could you love your wife or could you love your husband just like you just love someone at church? Because here's what's funny. We're just screaming yell at each other at home. We're just, yeah, 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 yeah. And then it's like the phone rings. It's like, hello. Oh, hey. How are you doing? It's like you would never treat someone like that. You say, well, I'm not married to them. Can you at least treat them like a stranger? As kindly, as polite as you would? Notice what he says. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. That means to show compassion. Be courteous. That means to be polite, respectful. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. You know, my wife and I were talking about, the, you know, how, you know, obviously when, when people get married and uh, when they're newly married, you fight a lot. You know, but as your marriage progresses, you fight less and less. And my wife and I were talking about the fact, like, we don't fight a lot just because we don't have the energy to. You know, like, I, I don't, I just, I don't want to, I don't have the energy. Like, I'm way too busy to fight with you, you know. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, just don't render evil for evil or railing for railing. Here's how Jesus said it. Turn the other cheek. Say, well, she disrespect. Just turn the other cheek. Well, he didn't. Just turn the other cheek. Notice what he says. But contrawise blessings, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he will love life. Notice, for he that will love life. You want to learn how to love life? People say this to me. People walk in my office and say, I hate my life. You want to learn how to love your life? You want to learn how to see good days? Here's the key. Here's the key. Let him refrain his tongue. You know, a secret to happiness is to learn to control your stinking tongue. Our church would be a lot happier if people learned to control their tongue. He says, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew, that means to abstain evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. The word ensue means that it occurs as a result. He says, look, you want to learn how to love your life? Learn to hold back your tongue. You want to learn how to love your life? Learn to not render evil for evil. 
railing for railing. And, he, and I don't have time to develop it, but David, David, we'll see it in 2 Samuel, David had such a fight with his wife that they literally just never had a physical relationship their whole marriage. That's what the Bible tells us. And he had, and he had just a terrible marriage. And that's why he said, he said about, about Jonathan, he said that his, he loved Jonathan more than he loved any woman. And that's the problem is that he, it was plural for him. He had multiple wives. But listen, in marriage, you know, here's a lesson we can learn from David and Jonathan. We need to develop strong marriages. Here's what that means. You guys, you need to learn how to talk to your wives. It not not be that your talking occurs, you know, when you're stuck in the car because you can't get out because you're on the highway, you know. You ought to learn to spend time with each other. You ought to go on dates together. And here's what I think is funny. It's like when you were dating, you were pursuing her. When you were dating, I mean, you were calling, and it was baby this and honey that. And, you know, let me get you this and let me get you that. Hey, that, that's, that's how it should be even in marriage. You know, in marriage, you ought to pursue your spouse. And, I, and she ought to pursue you. And, 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 and just, you know, have that rekindling and that love because it's a sad statement. It's not a perverted statement. I don't think David was a pervert, sodomite, you know, with Jonathan. But it is a sad commentary on his relationships that he would look at his buddy and say, I loved you more than, you know, my love with you was more than any, any woman that I've been. But you know what? There's guys that could say that today. There's women that would say, I love my mom more, I love my dad more, I love my girlfriend more than my husband, because my husband's a jerk. And that's a sad statement on your marriage, and you ought to work on that. You ought to develop your marriage. Let's bow our heads and have a